You're listening to an Ancient Future podcast produced by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This is episode 10 in our ongoing serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. Episode 10 brings us to the commandment, You shall not commit adultery. Now, there's a famous story about that commandment. I'm sure there's a number of infamous stories about that commandment as well. In 1631, the royal publishers released an edition of the authorized version, the King James Version, and in typesetting, somebody inadvertently left out the word not in that commandment, and therefore in what has come to be known as the Wicked Bible or the Sinner's Bible, it read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Well, it was a mistake that actually cost the printers their license, as well as a fine of 300 pounds, which in today's terms would be well over $100,000. Now, John's exploration of this commandment is, as you might have come to expect by now, innovative, honest, searching, and helpful. This is John Bodicher. Chapter 10. Freedom for Intimacy. The Seventh Commandment says, You shall not commit adultery. Now, you may have noticed that we've stopped quoting Deuteronomy, and that is because from here on, Deuteronomy differs from the Exodus version only by beginning each sentence, neither shall you, in this case, neither shall you commit adultery. So here we are at adultery. Some cynic has suggested that adultery is what you do when you become an adult. While we do live in a time and culture in which this statement has become unfortunately plausible, I will be arguing that this plausibility is more a judgment upon our culture than a revelation of a long-suppressed truth. And I hope that you, the listener, will consider the possibility that sexual intercourse, apart from genuine intimacy between the people involved, is, in fact, dehumanizing, a sign that freedom has been lost. Of course, this means that we will have to think about what common usage refers to as sex, even though this usage is far from the basic and simple meaning of the word. Think about it. You can be asked, are you having sex? Well, how could I not? I'm a member of a species in which sexual difference is crucial to reproduction. Every human has a sex. Although, as we have been discovering lately, assigning each person to a particular culturally given sexual identity can, in many cases, be arbitrary to the point of confusion and cruelty. Let's agree not to press the question, which sex are you, when the answer may be neither clear nor helpful. Sex, then, is something we have just by being human. What we do with it is the matter to which the Seventh Commandment speaks. As with the other commandments, it speaks a word, a promise of freedom. The order of the commandments suggests that integrity in our sexual relations is a very important dimension of loving our neighbor, right after respecting life itself. However, 
That is not a good excuse for the sexual obsessions of some Christians and their churches over the centuries. Consider the following assertions. 1. Real Christians, especially Christian women, will be virginal, abstaining from sexual relations altogether. 2. Women cannot possibly be priests or ministers. 3. Priests must be celibate. 4. Sex is one of those topics about which Christians must never speak except to pass judgment on the impure. 5. Anyone who loves and is sexually intimate with another person of the same sex is sinful and perverse and must be excluded from the church. 6. Anyone whose sense of their sexual identity does not fit readily into the categories recognized by our culture is morally disordered. Some such convictions have been held by a majority of Christians at one time or another. It is easy to say that such statements are wrong, even inhumane. A Roman Catholic friend of mine once made the point by saying that the church had taught him that sex is dirty and you should only do it with someone you love. It is less easy to show how the obsessiveness behind these so-called Christian values actually aggravates sexual disorder in the cultures where they are held, although the testimony of the victims of sexual abuse by church authorities should be sufficient evidence. Strange as it may seem, I am proposing that we can use the bad example of typical Christian attitudes towards sexual intimacy to guide us to the true meaning of the commandment. What is important for our purpose is to locate the source of the obsession and to show how it restricts the freedom toward which the commandment points us. In taking this path, I certainly am not claiming to be above or better than other Christians. I have committed adultery. I am a recovering homophobe. My own quest for intimacy through sexual relations will never serve as a model for anyone, except perhaps for my persistence in the face of failure. What I offer here is such wisdom as I may have gained through my own sin and failure and through the miracle of the good news of forgiveness and redemption. I could have said the same thing about my reflections on all the other commandments, but for the sake of those who know me, it seemed most important to do it here. Why is sexual attraction so powerful? Too often, Christians, contrary to the witness of their own scriptures, have taken it to be diabolical, one of those temptations from which we pray to be delivered. But what if it is powerful because God made it that way? Or if we are taking the third commandment seriously, what if it is powerful because the evolutionary process has made it that way for most of us? Sexual attraction between human beings is one of the clearest signs that we are meant for life together, for life in community. So why the fear and loathing on the part of some folks who claim to be religious? Well, maybe the fear part is not entirely wrong. There is a deeper sense of the word fear. The psalmist says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The teacher of wisdom tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in this sense, sexual intimacy is a fearful thing when we are fully aware of what is going on. The liturgy for marriage in the old Book of Common Prayer warned us that a sexual union is to be entered into reverently, discreetly, and in the fear of God. 
What is it about sexual intimacy that is truly fearful? Just this. Body, mind, and spirit go together. There is no wall between them. When I give my body intimately to another, I implicitly give my whole self. As Genesis puts it, the two shall become one flesh. Sexual intimacy implies mutual love, and love, properly understood, is not a feeling which may or may not last. It is an ordering of my will in which I hold the well-being of another at the center of my own well-being. Or, put more poetically, to love is to give another my heart, and that's clearly a dangerous undertaking. We call sexual intimacy lovemaking, and that is exactly what it is meant to be. However, we live in a culture which both affirms this truth and simultaneously gives us messages that contradict it. Too often, sexual intimacy is portrayed as a game, which we play for the pleasure it gives us, a game in which there are winners and losers, a game in which the powerful win and the weak are exploited, even displayed as trophies. This false playfulness can be understood as a reaction to the obsessive fearfulness of some Christian practice and teaching, but the results are no less harmful. In contrast to both these attitudes, sexual intimacy as expressive of love is fearful in the true sense because love is risky. Loving makes me utterly vulnerable to another, totally exposed to loss and disappointment, just as it opens me to real joy. In love, nothing is ever under control although the view of marriage promulgated by many religious groups makes it sound as if control is the whole point. So, sexual attraction is this powerful, fearful impetus towards lovemaking. We can become obsessed by it, but only if we are overcome by the wrong kind of fear, the kind that makes it impossible to love. No one who believes that the love of God for us is most fully revealed by a crucified Messiah, will underestimate the fearfulness of love, nor will they forget that perfect love casts out fear. Now back to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery does not mean something adults do. A different meaning of adultery operates here, one we can see in the word adulterate. One definition of that word reads, adulterate to debase or make impure by adding inferior, alien, or less desirable materials or elements. To adulterate sexual intimacy might mean something like the obsessive attitude of too many Christians, too overcome by fear to engage in genuine lovemaking, or it might mean engaging in sexual relations for the sake of personal pleasure but without love, or it might mean what it usually means, engaging in sexual intimacy when one or both persons have already given their bodies and have pretended to give their hearts to someone else. In all these cases, the fearfulness, the power, the joy, and the love implicit in sexual intimacy are severely adulterated. Sexual attraction is a gift meant to lead us to love, 
and love has always been both the source and the goal of freedom. Do not be obsessed by the fear or blind to the possibility of love. Genuine sexual intimacy is beautiful and awesome as well as fearful. Please don't adulterate it. Allow it to lead us toward the freedom of fearful, out-of-control, beautiful loving. You've been listening to a podcast in our serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. I'd invite you to consult the show notes where you'll find a link to the web post for this episode. And on that post, we will be including each of the episodes as they're released so that it's easy for you to go back and pick up one that you may have missed. Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments are Good News is easily available through many booksellers, both online and the bricks-and-mortar sort. And a particularly affordable edition of the book in Kindle format is available through Amazon. Music for this series was provided by Steve Bell. We are grateful to Signpost for their permission to use this music. We're also grateful to John for taking the time to so carefully record these. To Kevin Grummet, Larry Campbell, and Bram Ryan, who did a lot of the background work on this audio. And to you for taking the time to listen, to think, and to dig deeper with us in these podcasts. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.